Welcome to the fight with Teddy Atlas presented by Dynamic Striking. I'm Ken Rideout, joined as always by the voice of combat sports, the great Teddy Atlas. Teddy, how you doing? I'm good. We just did a great interview with John. I want to start right off with that with John Anik. We were supposed to have Anthony Smith Lionheart, but he's in training camp uh, for a fight. So we'll get him later at some point. But John Anik, who's the voice of uh, UFC, along with all the great voices they got, but he's the leader. He's the guy who does the play-by-play. Tremendous job. You love him. He's from Boston, so another Bostonian yep. uh, that you could um, that you could have on with you and and share your pride of everything Boston. <laughs> you know, with the Celtics yep. and and uh, who's the other Bruins now? They're looking like they're doing pretty good and having a chance to win titles this year. But you know what? Um, like they said in that movie, I had to remind you during the interview, you were getting crazy with John <laughs> saying, yeah, we got something. We got, we're going to win another title with the Bruins. We're gonna. I said, hey, remember, remember that movie, The Gambler, where the guy caught up and he said, hey, how much did I win? He said, you always thirty grand. He said, "What are you talking about? All my teams were winning at halftime. We don't pay off at halftime." <laughs> so <laughs> I might have to say that to my my brother Ken over here, just to remind him of that. But it was a great interview with John Anik. It really was. He's getting on a plane now, going over to London for the rematch with Usman and Edwards coming up this weekend, and. You guys, after we're done with this section of the podcast, stay there because you'll hear the interview with John Anik. Yep, stick around for that. But, Teddy, let's jump right One into One thing before with, uh, we jump in. March Madness, brother. March Madness, it's coming. I'm going to Disney, by the way. You went to Tokyo. I, I'm not going as far, uh, but I'm going to Disney with my family, the grandchildren. They're all excited. They're going to Mickey Mouse's house. I can't wait how excited they're going to be. We're going there this week. Uh, we'll be there during the weekend. We'll be there part of next week. So we'll have to figure out how I'm going to watch the fights this weekend and uh, what day we're going to record. But we will we will get it done as we do for the fans every week. But getting back to March Madness real quick, I'm going to put my prediction out there right now. All right? Full transparency. Okay. I spoke to UConn, Danny Hurley. Um, the great coach, he comes from a great coaching tree. His father, his, his brother was one of the greatest players. He was a great player too, but his brother Bobby was one of the greatest college players of all time. They won two titles with Duke um, and with, with the great Leitner there too. But I spoke to the UConn team before the season started. I think they're rated like number 11 in the country. They got a four seed, which I think is a pretty good seed. Um, they're in a tough bracket, but listen, everybody in the NCAA is in a tough bracket. I think, again, I'm going to make a bold prediction. I think UConn is going all the way to the Final Four. You guys want to call my bookie up? Go ahead. Go ahead. Call him up. You know, don't don't bet with your head, though. You know, bet, don't. I don't want to be responsible where you call me up and saying, hey, Teddy, can I come stay at your house? I just lost my home. I just mortgaged my house to bet on UConn. No, I don't have room for you. No, you can't stay in my basement. No, bet 
responsibly, okay? If you bet at all. I'm just saying I like UConn to go to the Final Four. And you know I'm not going to stop there, Ken. They're cutting the nets down, baby. They're cutting the nets down. <laughs> nice. I know there's a lot of tough teams. You got. I hope they do. You got Kansas. You got Alabama. You got Houston. Uh, you got uh, what was what's the other what's the other top team? Let's see. There's four top teams. Number one seeds. You got you got Alabama, Houston. You got um, I already said Kansas, and. What's the other one? There's one other number one seed. One sec. Yeah. Alabama, Houston, you said. Uh, Purdue. Oh, Purdue. And Kansas. Purdue's got a seven foot four center. That guy's a problem. That that guy that guy could be a problem. But good coaches know how to take away size, eliminate the entrance pass, you know, double team the guy. Whatever you gotta do, there's there's always some way to solve a problem uh, if you have a good enough coach and you have the players that are ready to do it. Anyway, UConn, baby. March Madness. Let's get to boxing and UFC Madness now, Ken. Let's do it. Uh, UFC main event. Unbelievable fight. Petrion versus Marab Devishvili. We're going to call him Marab going forward. But my God, Marab... Marab put a pace on him that was undeniable, unbelievable, um, just dominated from start to finish. I haven't seen Petrian look uh, on the wrong side of a, of a beatdown like that ever. Um, sets up a very interesting situation with um, Sterling and Devishvali being in the uh, same camp over at um, Matt Serra's training camp on Long Island. So, And Dane has already said if they don't want to fight each other, well, Marab's going to probably end up on the losing end of that because he's just going to fight a like a murderer's row of contenders. Um, so that's it. so many interesting variables with that fight. But what'd you think of the fight? Just totally one sided well, from my perspective. Yeah, well, to piggyback off of what you said about the pace, I tweeted, you know, out with my great tweeting team, the, the greatest in the world. I tweeted out that this guy, Marab, he probably. If he goes to the grocery store down the street, he probably drives 80 miles an hour. I mean, this guy doesn't do anything at a normal pace. This guy is kinetic and energy at its best. I mean, kinetic, phonetic, everything. He's, he, is, he is a problem. One of the things that I also tweeted, and it came to play, it comes to play in boxing, but it comes to play in MMA too. Styles make fights. You know, I a lot of people thought Jan was going to win. But nobody thought that he would get dominated. Dominated. Maybe shut out. Five to nothing in rounds. The way that he was dominated. And again, styles make fights. And when you have a deliberate style, a cerebral style... A technical style. I mean, Jan's great. Jan's great. And you have that against this kind of, you know, this kind of energy. This guy that's like an octopus coming at you with all different tentacles from all different directions. When you have that, you have a problem because 
Usually a guy like Jan wants to think a little bit. He doesn't give you time to think. See, that was part of the handicapping for me to, to give it to our audience now the way I saw it through the lens of my eyes where this is a guy in Jan who really his he's in there with the style of a guy that it it for his strengths, it bears weakness to his strengths. His strengths are to be smart. As I said, I use the word cerebral, technical, you know, deliberate. And this guy doesn't give you a chance to do that. And while you're, he takes advantage of those strengths. Those strengths become weaknesses. I think the strength of Jan became a weakness where he's trying to figure it out and there's nothing to figure out. He's trying to get set to counter, and the guy's in on you before you get a chance to be set to time him or counter. So he really plays, he took away the strengths. Again, I'll say it again. The strengths of Jan became a weakness in this particular matchup. And to the credit of Marab, where, and and I learned from you, I'm not going to mess with his last name, but the credit of Marab, to his credit, not only was the pace extreme and consistently extreme, but he mixed it up in so many different phases of the game, from from striking to throwing some kicks to shooting in for attempted takedowns. In other words, he mixed it up. He he showed a variance. He he showed a a real wide scope of abilities well-rounded, where he didn't give Jan a chance to figure it out because he kept him off balance with all the different things he was showing him. So that he deserves credit in that, how well-rounded. Yeah, his phonetic attack, his kinetic attack was, but how well-rounded and how diversified it also was. That was, that was, that caught my eyes. And uh, it just, he was, you know, when you get behind, you it's always tough to come from behind for anybody. But when you have the style of Jan, again, I'm going to the style. When you have the style of Jan, who's to be deliberate, who's to control the pace, control the fight, be in charge. Ken, when you have that kind of style, and you get behind two to nothing, which happened really fast against Marab, you got a problem. Because your style is contingent on controlling things. You're not in control. Now you got to take chances. Your style is contingent on doing reliable, smart, responsible things, not crazy things. Now you got to do something crazy. Now, and, and it's not in your wheelhouse to do that. It wasn't in Jan's wheelhouse to do that. Where now, like I said earlier, your strengths become a weakness. Where, you know, you're used to controlling everything. Well, now you're behind two to nothing. You can't play that game. You got to take risk. You got to take gambles. You got to suddenly, you know, become, uh, you know, you got to make it a, a shootout. You, you got to become a gunslinger. And he's, he's not that. He's not that. So it, it got bad for him. 
with no hope of getting better. Really fast. Really fast. So I I was, I'll tell you, this guy's a load. He'd be a load for O'Malley, right? I mean, can, can you imagine him with O'Malley or, or with just about anybody? I mean, once he gets in gear, your only chance is to hurt him. Really, to hurt him, to catch him coming in with a kick, with a punch, whatever, a strike, whatever, you know, or to be better, to get him to the mat and be better than him. But again, he's got a myriad of abilities that he can hold his own in so many areas. It, it really does make him a problem. What do you make of the situation with him potentially being forced or asked to fight his teammate, um, Aljamain Sterling? Listen, it's business, but it's personal. You know, you watch the Godfather movie and say, hey, it's, it's not personal, it's business. So Dana White is taking that tack, I get it, where, you know, he's saying, you know, he's saying what was said in The Godfather, you know, what, what, um, what the heck was the name of the guy uh, that played Maya Lansky, um, Hyman Roth. Hyman Roth said to Michael, it's not personal, it's business. And, but it's personal. Sometimes it is personal. And I, I give Marab and Sterling credit. They're friends. They don't want to get in there. They, and, and I give Marab credit in his character department too, that he knows now, as you just said, and as Dana said, that that means he's going to be second fiddle. That means that he's going to have to wait in line to make the money, you know, to make those bigger matches, to get his shot. And he, it seems like he's willing to do that. He just wants to keep fighting and fighting the best guys that he can fight. I think that he might have to find another entrance ramp, you know, of a fight. Uh, since it seems like these guys are steadfast in in what they say in their belief that they don't want to fight each other, you know. And well, I think so. I think Cejudo is going to beat Sterling personally, and I, I I'm rooting for Sterling, but I, that's a tough. Sterling match. is so I mean, strong. Cejudo. I don't know. I mean, that's a tough yeah. match. That that's a good match. That's yeah. a hell of a match. I don't know. Sterling is a strong, strong. I mean, besides being technically good, like these guys all are in their different, you know, forms of combat, um, whether it's jujitsu, whether it's wrestling, grappling, whether it's striking, you know, whatever it happens to be. But, man, Sterling is, he's just got that physical strength to him um, besides everything that I just touched on. But, yeah, that's a hell of a match. And if that happens, and if Sududu wins, then, of course, it's, boom, Marab can be right there. Uh, for that, you know, one of the ways I don't know if I tweeted this. By the way, our tweets made uh, they 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 made they made the board again. They made television again. Again, it's it's, it's <laughs> I saw them. It's cool. It's cool. You know, and um, <laughs> it's, I, I know I've been on I've been on TV for forty years and and boxing fifty years, and I still think it's cool. Um, <laughs> but anyway, one of the things. For me to describe what Marab was doing and what he represents in comparison to a guy like Jan, who's more traditional, is that 
Jan would be the guy that's trying to paint a masterpiece, like a Rembrandt, you know, that, that's in that octagon trying to, you know, paint something traditional. And Marab, he's a graffiti artist. He's just spray painting. <laughs> exactly. He's spray painting the crap <laughs> out of you while you're trying to take your strokes there, and you got your paintbrush and and your oil paints, and you're trying to do something magnificent and beautiful. He's out there with the with the can going all over your stuff, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> like like a graffiti artist on the subway. I mean, that's that's what he is, and. Don't take it that I'm saying he doesn't have that cerebral content to him and and part to him too because he does. Because I said earlier, he mixed it up enough where he was smart enough to keep changing the levels of his takedown attempts, uh, throwing some kicks in, throwing some takedowns, throwing some strikes. You know, he there is that cerebral part to it with him too. You know, he's not just all spray paint. So, and and like you talk about, you know, having a car that gets good mileage that never runs out of gas. I mean, God, this guy could drive from here to Siberia. I mean, <laughs> he's got a he's got a gas tank that's uh, it just doesn't end. I mean, God, it's a deep gas tank. Um, so. The other thing I, let's see, I wanted to touch on was uh, another thing that fits the bill for Marab that you can use one of these old sayings. You you hear sometimes, especially in boxing, where somebody is say, hey, this guy's offense is his best defense. And that was the case with Marab. His offense is his defense. It really is. And the funny thing about, not that I'm suggesting he gets hit a lot, because he really doesn't, but it's because of his offense. Because he keeps you so defensive-minded. You know, he, 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 keeps, he keeps you in your shell defending where you can't really be concentrating on a productive offense. It, it limits your production offensively because of the way he consistently attacks you. So, yeah, if, if, if you're going in there and you want to see a Pernell Whitaker or a, a Mayweather, you're not getting that. You're, you're getting a Joe Frazier, smoking Joe Frazier, coming at you, coming at you, coming at you, coming at you, coming at you. You know, you're getting that. And again, where Mayweather and Pernell Whitaker use their great defensive skills, you know, to disarm you. Uh, you know, to make you hesitant about throwing, to take away your offense. He uses his offense to take away your offense. That's not, not a lot of guys can do that and get away with. Usually when I'm talking about guys like that, they're getting caught on the way in. <laughs> usually th those guys are catches where, you know, they're, it's not working out real well for them once they get to a certain level. Once they get yeah. to a certain level, they're getting tagged on the way in with their reckless offense. But not this guy because he mixes it up enough to get away with it. So 
I think that's a pretty good breakdown of what I saw and what it meant to me, you know, what what it translated to me when I was watching it. And again, my my Twitter team of Rob Moore, Ian Mackey, and Brennan Wood, you guys, you know, you guys keep putting those pelts up. Keep putting those pelts up on the wall. We keep, yeah, they're pelts. They're pelts, Ken. You know, well, they're skins. They're skins for us. We're putting skins up there. And um, I think that's, I think I covered, um, I think I covered pretty much all of that. Uh, the only other thing I, I think I threw this tweet out there. It was a cute one, I thought, where obviously he's got the right nickname. They call him the machine. I mean, that, you know, that fits in perfect, you know. Uh, just like with with uh, Lomachenko, they called him the Matrix, I think. And that fitted in with his moves and his trickiness and everything else. Uh, that fitted in pretty damn good. The nickname, The Machine, is perfect for Marab. And I just added to it in a tweet that this guy, instead of orange juice, he probably drinks you know, a can of motor oil in 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 the morning for breakfast. I mean, that's how machine like this son of a gun is. That, you know, he he just um you know he should get a sponsor. I know you always look out for the fighters and you say from that financial end of it, that business end of it, and you say, Hey, this guy needs a sponsor. And you've tried to help a few guys actually. You have helped a few guys actually to be honest. And I think that Whoever's managing um, Marab, they, as he grows, as he obviously progresses and continues to be successful, look to get him a sponsor with like an oil filter company, STP oil filters or, uh, you know, oil products. Something like the machine says if you use this product, you will be at high, you will be running at higher levels use this oil i use it and then he could drink a can of the oil you know <laughs> right there it'd be great i I'm, i want his people to get on that ken i want i want <laughs> i want more rob's people to get right on that get a sponsorship uh for motor oil no it was terrific he was uh he was he was hey he 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 planted his flag he planted his flag. That's for sure. He, nobody expected, like I said, most people thought Jan was going to win, but no one expected that kind of domination. And I'm um, speaking nope. of domination. It, it wound up being dominant. It, it, it was competitive. It was competitive um, for a while. But go ahead, take us there. Take us down under. Yeah, speaking of domination, uh, Tim Zhu stops... Tony Harrison in impressive fashion in the ninth round. Um, TKO stoppage for a minute there as 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 Zoo was finishing him off. Uh, I was thinking, is the ref trying to get Tony Harrison killed? I Terrible. think at one point, Terrible. Tim Zoo hit him with like five or six uppercuts. I wouldn't let in a that row. ref ref no more. He is going to get somebody uh, hurt. He is going to get that, that was, was I mean. You could tell Tony was hurt on his feet, and Tim just kept cracking him. I mean, it's the same punch. To, but geez, the ref, he kept I was, reloading yeah, with the right that. uppercut. I mean, and the referee's not in there. The guy's gone. He's frozen nope. against the ropes. He can't defend himself. Yep. That's pretty obvious. I mean, what are you letting him take those extra hard shots for? Thank God, Tony Harrison is okay. Thank God. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was. Uh, I thought Tony Harrison probably won the first and then lost the rest of the round. Some of them were com- some of them were more competitive than others. Yeah. But what'd you think of the fight uh, leading up to the stoppage? I thought that I, there was a lot of close rounds. Um, the first round, I agree with you. He took that round, and then I thought there was some rounds that were close. But at the end of the day, it was kind of like I've used this analogy before. It was kind of like the dog fighting a cat. You knew the dog eventually <laughs> was going to eat the cat. You know what I mean? Yeah, you, you just you just knew that as much as the cat was scratching and clawing and, you know, keeping the dog off him in spots, you just knew at the end of the day the dog was going to have his way. And he did. And the dog, of course, would be Zoo. Um, first of all, we should... For the people that don't know, he's the son of the former world champion, uh, Casas Zoo. And the fight was down under in Australia. Great crowd. Great crowd. It was great. great. And, I, you know, give credit. I give credit. Before I dissect the fight on Zoo's, you know, for the way that Zoo got it done, let's give credit to Harrison. He was in a hostile environment, you know, and uh, someone else's country and he put forward a good performance uh up until the end he 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 put forward a a a good performance and uh he was using the jab uh his problem was it came evident at some point the jab wasn't going to be enough and and that it was kind of like he had he had a pistol, like a twenty-two caliber pistol with six shots in it, and the other guy had a Gatling gun. Guess what? You don't need Teddy Atlas to tell you. The guy with the Gatling gun's going to get you. He's going to get you. And, and that's what happened. He got him. Um, it, was, it was a matter of the pressure, the steady pressure of Zoo wearing them gradually down, like I talk about, like when you're at the seashore and the tide is coming and you built that beautiful castle and the tide, you better move that castle because guess what? Maybe it'll take 40 minutes, another hour, another half hour, whatever the freak it takes, but the tide's going to come and it's going to wash away your beautiful castle. And that's what it was. The tide kept coming, kept coming, kept coming. Around the eighth round, it really started to come and then of course it washed away the castle, and Tony Harrison in the ninth round. The steady pressure, I liked. What I was impressed by Zoo with was his poise, his deliberate approach, his calm, and his ability to place punches very well in a pretty accurate way, power punches. And where he was always set to deliver them. He was never really off stride or off balance. He a little bit reminded me of the great Japanese world champion, or world champion from Japanese, from Japan, I should say, uh, in a way, where he's always set to deliver. And I saw those attributes, and I give him credit for that. Poise, deliberate, his approach, uh, like I said, placing smart punches in the right areas. I thought early on he wasn't using the jab enough coming forward to take away 
the jab more of Harrison. And then when he started using it, which he did later, it, it was so effective. His jab was was really effective, he being Zoo now. Um, I thought early on he kind of gave a pathway to Harrison to do a little work with his jab because he was coming in without his jab. But once he started putting bugs on the windshield, like I used to say on ESPN, and blurring the vision with his jab, the vision of Harrison, then Harrison almost had no shot. No shot. So he started using the jab more. And then the thing that I think turned the tables really, obviously was the job that the pressure did. The accumulation of that, the cumulative effects of the pressure, round after round, wearing down Harrison, mentally and physically. But it was the body punching later. He wasn't doing enough body punching. I even tweeted that, I believe, that I thought Zeus should have been going to the, using the jab more, going to the body more early. And then later on, he did in the eighth round, seventh, eighth round, of course, the ninth round, he started going to the body. And that froze up some of the head movement of defensive head movement of Harrison. And that really brought about the end of Harrison, where Harrison was then just a sitting duck for those power punches and those uppercuts. And again, the referee could have really got the kid hurt bad, uh, to your point. Thank God that he wasn't hurt. I was impressed. I was impressed with what I just laid out. I was impressed with... What do you think? How do you think Zoo does against uh, Charlo? Of, diff- of course, a whole different ball game. Um, one of the things I noticed with Zoo that will be a problem for him... First of all, I think it's competitive. I think it's interesting. I look forward to that fight. I think it's an interesting fight. Charlo will be the favorite, but I, I think it's interesting. I think it's competitive. Now, here's the thing. One of the things, they both have flaws, everybody does, but one of the flaws that wasn't spoken about because he won and he wound up eventually dominating eventually against Harrison was that all the things I said, the attributes about Zoo are there and, and I stick by them. That he's poised, that he's got a deliberateness to him, he knows his plan, he knows his approach, he sticks to it. You know, he places punches nicely. He's in position nice. But sometimes he takes a picture after he punches. He admires his work. He stays there after he delivers. And you can catch him. You know, I would always say in the gym to the fighters, you were there, you know, don't take a picture. You know, move after your last punch. Move your head. You know, don't admire your work. He admires his work sometimes. And that could be a problem against Charlo because Charlo A will come right back punching and nail him if he's admiring his work and B Charlo punches a lot better than Harrison so that's something he's got to be cognizant of his people have to be cognizant of hey look you can catch Charlo you can find Charlo you can hit Charlo too I thought it was it's going to be an interesting fight I thought it was interesting they had Charlo in the studio there with them and I thought it was interesting when Charlo said a couple times, 
and kept making a point. I get it. He's not going to be in there with him. He's going to be in there not with Harry, with me. Well, obviously, I think that's Captain Obvious. Yeah, we know that. Um, and I'm a better puncher, and I'm, you know, it's going to be a different ball game. Yes. But one thing he said was funny. And the commentators never called him on it because they're afraid to, I think. They, they don't want to go there, whatever. They want, want to be polite. But I think it's their job to correct it. That's their job. He And no big deal, but I notice everything. You know that, Ken. I, I, there's nothing I don't notice. I'm sorry. And I, you know, I notice a fly on the screen, you know, over there. And he said, yeah, it's going to be different when he's in there with me because, you know, I'm a better puncher. I'm undefeated. He's not undefeated. He lost <laughs> He lost to Harris. And they didn't say that. They didn't want to. I could sense it. They didn't want to say, hey, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, they, Because they, they, they didn't want to. But it's their job to say, um, no, actually, you know, you, you lost to Harrison. And, you know, and now Zoo's going to build on that confidence. That's part of the intangibles that are always uh, the variables that are always in the air uh, some way in a fight where he'll say in his head, he'll say, you know, Harrison beat him and I stopped Harrison. Now, of course, he wound yeah. up stopping Harrison. He'd be in Charlo in the rematch. Late in the fight. Yeah. I thought he was losing the fight, to be honest. I don't know about what the judges were watching, but like the 11th round, he caught up to him. Harrison stayed in front of him too much and the power caught him. But the uh, it'll be an interesting match. It really... It really will be. The other interesting thing that nobody touched on. See, again, some people could say it's it's not our business. Once it's out there, it's the job. See, the commentators become journalists. And it becomes their job to follow the point for the audience. Once, once the horse gets out of the barn, you got to follow that horse. And what I'm talking about here, again, I notice everything. What I'm talking about here is that they made the point, they made it, they opened it up, that Katsuzu, the champion, the former world champion fighter, the father of Tim Zhu, was not there. That that he had, you know, that there was somebody who was ill, he was visiting somebody who was ill. They didn't get into it. Okay, fine. But then, and here's the thing, then they went and said, you know, he hasn't been at many fights. Right there, from a journalistic responsible place, you have to follow that up. You have to, you have to, because the fans, I know I was asking, is there a problem in their relationship? You know, what, what is it? I mean, well, I think that must, that has to be clearly has to be a problem. Your son's fighting for a world title. Like 99% of people are going to be there unless you have a problem with each other. Yeah. So uh, immediately, that's the first thing that hit me was like, you guys opened up the pathway to this. You opened up the door to this. Okay. But now go down that path. Complete it. Don't leave us hanging. Do your job as journalists now and, and, and explain to us and, and just put a period on it that, yeah, you know, there's a problem. You don't have to go crazy into it, but yeah, there's there's a problem. Um, rather than just say, yeah, you know, he hasn't been at too many fights. He's not here tonight. He hasn't been at too many <laughs> fights. Like really? Yeah. Like that's all. So anyway, um, the fight again. It, I was 
It was a good performance by Zoo. And, and definitely something for him to... And I give him credit. I got to give him credit for this. The Charlo fight has been put off because he broke his hand and now it's healing. So it's going to be put off for a little while from the original date, I guess. And if he waited, he would have been inactive for whatever amount of time. He didn't want to be inactive. He took yep. he took a gamble. He took a gamble against a good, legitimate, you know, top five fighter, and 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 got it done. I give him credit for yeah. that. He's thinking like a fighter. He's not just saying, "Well, I'm going to get a payday against Charlo, and you know, I'm I'm going to sit back and I'm going to wait for that." No, he took a gamble. He took a gamble on himself. He took a gamble on himself that I'm going to take a gamble, but I believe in myself and I believe this is what I need to do to have a better chance to win that fight against Charlo. That's important. That showed me something. That showed me as much as what he showed me actually with his fist in the ring. One guy that comes to mind, I love the guy. I love him. He was one of the great punches. David Tua. He was the, he was the mandatory years ago against Lennox Lewis. And rather than take a tune-up, and it would have been a risk, but you could have picked the right guy, whatever, and try to. But still, he sat idle for two years. I think it was two years. He sat idle, Ken, um, David Tua, to wait for that mandatory again because he knew he was going to get paid. He was going to get paid whatever, whatever X amount of millions of dollars again. And I love Tua. He's a great guy, great human being, and a great left hooker. But... He would have served himself a hell of a lot better if he would have taken at least one fight, if not two, but at least one fight instead of just sitting and waiting to fight Lewis when his mandatory came up. It diminished his chances of winning. I like when yeah. a guy bets on himself. Zoo bet on himself. He bet on himself by taking that tune-up, you know, this this fight as a whatever you want to call it, a tune-up, but you find a guy like Tony Harrison, it's not really a tune-up. He took a legitimate fight to make sure that he would be ready and not sitting around too long when his chance came up with Charles. I like it. I like the mentality of yeah. that. I like the aggression of that, the confidence of that. That speaks to the whole picture. That speaks to the body, the body of everything. It's part of it. It's part of you can't separate these parts. They all come together. Teddy, before uh, before we throw it to John Anik, I know you're going to uh, Disney with the family. Please make sure you bring your travel packs from Athletic Greens. Athleticgreens.com. Use the promo code Atlas A T L A S to get ten of these free travel packs with your first purchase. I'm in L A today, so you know I've got these with me in my uh, in my carry on. And I, Teddy, I know if you're going to be around all those kids and traveling. You'll definitely want to be taking these and make sure you keep all your vitamin content high. Because I don't pack, as, I don't pack as early as you do, but they're going to be packed. <laughs> Go to athleticgreens.com slash Atlas and get 10 free travel packs with your first purchase. Athletic Greens, they've been with us from the jump. Please support the uh, people that support the podcast. Before we jump into the uh, Anna conversation, I wanted to get your thoughts on... Um, Fury Usyk going back and forth. Fury issued a uh, challenge to um, Usyk. He said, 70-30, you got one day to accept it. 
And uh, Usyk, without missing a beat, came right back and said, I accept your challenge April 29th at Wembley. I'll take 70-30, and then you donate a million pounds to Ukraine. Apparently, Fury said, I'm good with that. That was uh, over the weekend, and then Fury came back today and said they're going back and forth. The lawyers are going back on the rematch clause, and Fury says, no rematch clause for either of us. Winner takes all. Either win and move on or lose and go home. Uh, winner take all. No rematch clause for either of us. What are your thoughts on I, the I fight, think, and uh, how do you like well, the I back think, and quite forth? quite frankly, that, all right. Winner That's, takes yeah, all the belts. I guess, well, put it this way. Fury's made a lot more money than music has made. He doesn't need a rematch. And I'm not being facetious here. I'm answering the question seriously. Um, You know, it sounds to me like maybe he's ready to to close up shop. Maybe. Maybe. And and I don't think that would be a crazy guess with what we know about Fury. And and listen, he's had a great career, and he still has a great career. Who knows how long? It's up to him. But it, it does sound like a guy that, you know, He's got enough money for, like we like to say, I don't want to spend no one's money, but for two lifetimes, right? Unless, you yep, know, if he doesn't sure. completely lose his mind, God willing, right? We don't want nobody to go down that path. But that's what it sounds like to me. Like, he doesn't need to be thinking about, you know, anything after because maybe he's already made up his mind that there is no after. You know, maybe he has. Maybe he's going to have one giant event for... A, really to put the cherry but it wouldn't be more than the cherry it would be like it would be the whole fruit department on on top of this <laughs> Sunday uh, to come and fight Francis and Ganyu you know kind of do like a like a McGregor Mayweather deal you know do one of those that could still be in the air yeah, maybe that's maybe that's there um, but he's I see where he's coming from for me, he's coming from a place where, hey, that I'm closing up shop. You know, I don't need nothing else. Let's do that. We, we eliminate all the lawyers. We eliminate the extra signatures, the extra ink. Uh, okay. And and Uzik, uh, you know, maybe he's thinking more like a businessman a tiny bit where, you know, and his people, you know, is saying, hey, no. Uh, yeah, I think I get the impression it's the people more than well, Uzik. Well, yeah, That's because the, I think Uzik, the- look, this is a guy who's, he's got a terrible situation going on in his country and he's he loves his country he's made that pretty clear he's still there and so here's a guy who's fighting for more than you know than just what you get when you get in the ring and all those accolades and all the you know the spoils that goes to the victor this, this guy's fighting for his country in a way that he's putting forward an image to his countrymen that we don't give up we fight we're world champions. You know, even though we're in this terrible fight with this terrible opponent, Russia, that we didn't ask for, that invaded us, that I'm, follow me. We will get back. Our fighting spirit is never conquered. He's got that going for him. And I think that's, a, that's an intangible. That's an X factor. That That's powerful. So... Maybe his people, you know, again, to close up on your question, uh, I'll say, no, you know, the business part of it has to be taken care of too. Because if you left it up to Uzik, he probably would just say, let's go. We we fight. 
Well, I think Fury, I think Fury um, didn't expect him to accept it, and now is just like throwing out more asks because, might be. according to some of the reports I saw, he hasn't been in training. Yesterday was his first day of training. The fight, April 29th, is like six weeks away, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he's so probably thinking that's not a right. lot of time for heavyweight. No, Fury might be thinking, oh, sugar, this guy said yes. I think he and is. Like he said yes yep. to seventy thirty. Oh, my God. He said yes to this. He said, yeah. I thought he was going to say no. He was going to slow it down and give us time. And and he said, so like you said, he had to pick up another rock and throw another rock, you know, yeah. uh, to, to keep to keep this thing delayed. So, yeah, uh, it looks like that's all the things I said we just touched on are possibilities. That last one is definitely a possibility that he's just, chucking another hurdle at him <laughs> because because everything he's chucked at him the guy said uh yes let's uh get in the ring and let's do this you know <laughs> he called him greedy he called him greedy belly yeah, greedy belly so <laughs> yeah so listen you gotta love Uzik. i mean you can love yeah. fury too for what he's accomplished where he's come from what he's overcome in his life when his life was spiraling down you know down the tubes and he came back Give him all the credit in the world. Give Uzik all the credit. He's fighting for his country. Um, you know, he's fighting for. You know, he's giving them hope. He he really he he's 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 giving he's he's leading the way, showing not leading the way like the the troops out there with guns shooting bullets. <laughs> uh, that's that's leading the way. But he he is doing his part to inspire his people. Um, and yeah, to keep the hope, to just to one. keep the hope of his people alive, which which is a hell of a thing right now. Look, at the end of the day, he's the smaller guy. Here's Teddy Atlas's analysis, real fast. Uh, just a touch, just a taste of it. We'll get more into it when it when the fight's actually made. But yeah, usually the smaller man. Everyone wants to know a good big man against a good small man. Who wins? And a lot of times. The good small man has the edge where people don't really understand it immediately and grasp it immediately. They think, oh, the bigger guy, he says, he's strong. He's not. But the smaller guy usually has the edge because he's quicker. Sometimes he might be smarter. He might be technically a little better, that he had to be better at a smaller weight where the bigger guy got away with power and size like a George Foreman more than with pure technique. So a lot of times the smaller guy might... Actually, even though he's smaller, might have the edge that he goes in there. He's a little more, he's he's a little more sophisticated. He's he's a little more finesse to him, where in those departments, and he can keep the bigger guy off balance. Here's the problem. Here's the very interesting thing in this one: the bigger guy, who's who's a mammoth, right, a behemoth, at fury, right, six eight, two seventy, or whatever he comes in to fight at. He has. Those attributes I, that usually are attached to the smaller guy. That he's agile, he's quick, he, he's cerebral, his technique is good, he can box, he can go get you, he can use his size in different ways on the outside with the jab, setting stuff up, or coming forward and imposing his physicality. That's what makes, whew, that's what makes it a heck of a, interesting match on the side of Uzik. Can the smaller guy who doesn't necessarily automatically get granted those advantages that a smaller guy usually gets granted against the bigger guy, 
that that's some of that is even even territory and the bigger guy's still bigger wow that <laughs> that's a lot to overcome and that's why fury yep. will be the favorite in that fight but at the end of the day yeah i am not gonna bet against the guy that simply knows how to do one thing win Remember the remember and Rob Rob's gonna get this up for me. But he's my man. Uh, remember that in the Rocky movie, in the in the second one, when when the wife didn't want him to fight, she was in the hospital, and then thank God she got better and she had the baby. And then Rocky wasn't really training because he said she didn't want him to fight no more. And then and then she says to him, "Come here, I want to tell you something. What? What is? Win." <laughs> and remember, yo, I mean, everyone was ready to run out of their house and, and, and go crazy and just go do 20 miles of road work. You do, you do 20 miles in your backyard every day. But I'm, everybody was ready to go. No, and, and that's it. Win. Just, and that's, what, that's the thing. That's, that's, the, that's the one thing. I know that usually I dissect things and I can break down all different areas, but sometimes it's not necessary. With this fight, it might just come down. I know Fury knows how to win too, but this guy, he won the gold medal in the Olympics. He won the cruiserweight title. He unified all the titles. He won the heavyweight title. He just knows how to win. There's something to be said yep. about a guy who just knows how to win. That's it. I'll leave it at that. Yep. Well, that's a pretty good breakdown of the two uh, main events this weekend, and we get into a bunch of the upcoming fights on the uh, following interview that we have with John Anik here. And Teddy, unless you've got anything else, let's lead right into this John Anik conversation because it's a good one. Like you said, fellow Bostonian, the voice of the UFC, along with Joe Rogan and some of the other guys like TC, Dominic Cruz, Paul Felder, etc. But um, excited to share this interview. Uh, you got anything, Teddy, before we jump into the Anik conversation? Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, the great John Anik. Welcome to the fight with Teddy Atlas, presented by Dynamic Striking. I'm Ken Rideout, joined as always by the voice of combat sports. And today, the voice number two, the great John Anik. Voice number Bost one. He's not Bost he, Boston's John Anik, own. John Anik doesn't take number two to anybody. Ha! Come on now. It's great to be with you guys. Thanks, John. Let me just qualify. We do that as a tease to the, uh, to the combat sports, the MMA fans in particular. We call Teddy the voice of all combat sports <laughs> just to get the reaction on the YouTube comments. Well, hey, I don't trot out the word legend all the time, but Teddy Atlas is a bona fide legend. We actually got to work on television for the first time only a couple of weeks ago. We sort of have been crossing paths from one to another, but uh, it was nice to be in a, a fired up MGM Grand and, and right there in the middle of the casino, we got to chop it up for a little bit. And, uh, you know, this is a longer platform, right? Sometimes in television, it's sound bites, it's quick. We might have two and a half minutes, but this podcast platform allows up to allows us to chop it up a little bit longer. So I'm excited to be here. Yeah, and you don't have no producers yelling at you to uh, rap. You know, that's, that's, you know what I mean. I'm in ESPN for 26 years. Uh, you know, I got to the point where one time I was on actually, it's a funny story. I, they didn't think it was funny, but it was a funny story. Oh. I'm doing, doing a live hit, uh, hit after, I think it was after Canelo fight. We were out in Vegas, whatever it was. It might have been Canelo and Triple G actually. And I'm on with Stephen A. And the two of us, you know, we can take the oxygen out of a room fast, you know. <laughs> and um, 
And, and we're going, we're going, we're going. All of a sudden, we're going back and forth. He's trying to get there. I'm going over him. We're going back. And it's it's good TV, quite frankly. And all of a sudden, the producer says to me, rap. I said, no, I'm not rapping. You tell, <laughs> tell him right. to rap. Right. Live on TV. <laughs> you know, yeah, you tell him to rap. He, he didn't tell you to rap, did he? And, and Stephen A is like, uh, you know, and so it was... Um, it's good to, like you said, it's good to have a format where you're not restricted by the time and by the cookie cutters. Sometimes some of these producers are great. Don't get me wrong. They got a job to do. I get it. But I always used to say to them that some of you guys get too caught up in the clock. That if you have good TV going on, if you have good conversation, what, a, what about... The content. What what about rather than just you know the time limits and hitting those numbers all the time? What about just that it's good content that the people, if it's good content, the people are going to watch, and your job is going to be done the right way. You're going to be successful. And I I would say to some of them, again, I'm not sure they love me for saying it, but I say, you guys get caught up in this cookie-cutter thing, like you're looking at the sheet, you're looking at, instead of listening to what's going on, that, hey, if it's good, let it go. Yeah. Let it go. Let it go for a second. Do you, have you felt no, that right. way? In well, absolutely. You know, I came at this as a radio guy, and I do think for television producers, you got to have the willingness to pivot and the ability to stay in a moment and maybe bail on a feature. Grant, a lot of hard work goes into the feature, so you're serving a lot of different masters, but you and I are in the belly of the beast at MGM Grand, and I think at times we're beholden to a television rundown or to a feature that we need to run. However powerful, you got Teddy Atlas in front of a goddamn live audience. Let's let him rip for a little bit, you know? So, But I try to stay in my lane. I try not to play producer, but largely for me, I went print journalism to radio and had to really adjust myself in terms of not just writing for television, but being a television broadcaster because it's just everything's tighter and, and more concise than the medium that I sort of cut my teeth in. Well, you do a great job. Uh, you do. I mean, it's not because you're here. When you're not here, I say the same thing. Well, thank so you. So you do, and all you guys do. That's the one thing I appreciate with the UFC, quite frankly, is that they got the right people doing that their jobs, to be quite frank, you know, which I don't think happens in boxing sometimes, quite frankly. But um, in in UFC, you do you 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 have the right person doing a play by play. You you're tremendous. You know your role. You you keep it moving. You you know what to hit. You you're like a maestro out there, you know. And well, and um, yeah, you are. And then you have, and you're supposed to be, uh, but not everybody's capable of doing that. And then you have your analyst, and you have a bunch of good ones. Uh, you really do. I mean, <laughs> you you have murderers row, uh, literally. Yeah. They are murderers. <laughs> yeah. But you, you go down that list from one to another. You go from the A to the B to I don't know that there's any difference. I mean, uh, I, I guess you realize how good those guys are and how good you guys. Your chemistry together, it's tremendous. Well, thank you, man. Obviously, coming from you, it means a heck of a lot to somebody like me that uh, has sort of put you on the pedestal that you deserve to be on for years, if I'm being frank with your audience. But yeah, man, I believe that nationally speaking, these analysts don't get the credit that they deserve. I mean, for Joe Rogan to have not even 
been nominated for an Emmy at this point, point in time. It's just absurd, you know? So, yeah, I do think depth, we can compete with any sport in terms of our analysts. You know, sometimes I maybe bemoan the fact that I don't have a more regular broadcast team. Back in the day, Brian Stan was one of my broadcast partners. And just when I felt like we were doing... 20 shows a year together and developing chemistry, he went off into the business world, you know? So I love being able to mix it up a little bit, but I do think part of me would like to have that consistency. And they've gone to it a little bit on pay-per-view with with Joe Rogan and Daniel Cormier. Um, but it's been great for us to be able to add you to our coverage, of course, because there have been a lot of people in boxing that give mixed martial arts the Heisman. And even back in the day, 2003, 2004, when I was hosting a boxing radio show and this mixed martial arts avalanche is coming, I was def- defending boxing with every ounce of me, right? Because everybody wanted to tell me about mixed martial arts and I didn't want to hear the noise. I didn't enjoy the grappling, you know? Of course, now I have covered mixed martial arts for a long time. Once I saw it in person, I understand it. I understood acutely what the bug was all about. But, um, you know, it's been fun to be a part of mixed martial arts coverage and uh, and we're thankful that you've uh, that you've opened your arms to it as well, my man. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate appreciate you. And, you know, my partner here, Ken, appreciates you, too. And he appreciates that you're from Boston because um, <laughs> everything Boston he loves, like except for one thing, Tom Brady. I don't know. I don't know what happened there, but he, he's like Benedict removed him. Brady. He, he, he removed him from his speed dial. I joke with him, <laughs> uh, you know, but everything else, Boston, he uh, I know he wants to say something to you and then I'll go on from there. Yeah, no, I just wanted to lie. I don't know if enough people know that um, how lucky we both are to be from Boston and have the run that we've had since like probably 2000 with the Patriots, Bruins, Red Sox, uh, Celtics. We're on a tear. I think the Celtics and the Bruins win the uh, championships this year. And I just wanted to uh, highlight the fact that it's uh, not done yet. Ken, Ken, Ken. (laughs) It it ain't done yet. All right. The horse is not (laughs) in the barn yet. That's for sure. But um, I, I know that you um, originally wrote for a newspaper in Framingham, right? I went to Framingham State. Oh, you went to Framingham State. There you go. I actually had my first The Harvard byline. of Framingham, Mass. There you go. Oh, there you go. Nice. So this is my wow, first byline from the Milford Daily News. I covered a Love boys' it. high school soccer game. And interestingly wow. enough, it was September 27, 2001. So it was 16 days after September 11th. My, my wow. first assignment. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think for a lot of us in Boston, certainly thankful that the sports teams are at where they are now, but we grew up absolutely starved. And I think that fueled my passion. I mean, thankfully, I kind of knew I wanted to work in sports by the time I was 15, 16 years old. I think you grow up in Boston, whether you like it or not, the Celtics on a black and white TV are going to be on every night of the winter. And that's just the way it goes. But it's an uncomfortable position right now, Ken, as we sit here in mid-March to have the Celtics and the Bruins as the betting favorites to win those respective titles. I don't like being there necessarily, but hopefully one of them gets it gets it home. Now, nah, like Teddy would say, pressure is a privilege. I like that. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Listen, I'm taking my sons to their first Celtics game on March 31st. They're uh, 11, 9, and 7. So the four oh, of wow. us are going to see Celtics, uh, Utah at Celtics on a Friday night. They're so that? excited. Oh, that's wow. great. That's, that's <laughs> going to be fun. All right, guys. Quick pause to give a shout out to today's sponsor, MyBookie. If you're going to bet on UFC 286, head over to MyBookie.ag. Use the promo code ATLAS for 50% credit on your first deposit. That's mybookie.ag, promo code ATLAS for 50% credit on your first deposit. Line on the main event, Usman minus 250. 
Uh, Edwards, plus 190, interesting line. Um, man, I think I like Leon to, uh, to uh, retain the title. Uh, in the co-main, Justin Gaethje, plus 185 versus Fazeev at minus 240, another interesting line. Um, I think I like the favorite there. That's an interesting fight. But anyway, head over to my, if you're going to bet on the fight, head over to my bookie. Check them out, mybookie.ag. Use the promo code ATLAS. John, let's go back uh Let's go back a couple of weeks. We were just talking about, you were just talking about, you guys were gracious enough to have this boxing primate uh, on your set. Yeah. And I, I appreciate the hell out of all you guys. And, I mean, there's only one place to start if we're going to go back there. Is John Jones the greatest uh, UFC MMA fighter of all time? Yeah, skill for skill, he's the best mixed martial arts athlete that I have seen. And all of those skills are bolstered by the fact that singularly, I think he has the best legacy, the best strength of schedule. There's not a bad championship win. There's not an easy championship win. With respect to Valentina Shevchenko, who just lost her belt to Alexa Grasso, for most of her championship reign, seven, eight title defenses, she's a prohibitive minus 1,200 betting favorite, juxtaposed against Johnny Bones, who's fighting myriad legends, all of them in their prime, Lyoto Machida, Vitor Belfort, Daniel Cormier twice, Rashad Evans, Quentin Rampage Jackson, on and on it goes. And... He did most of those with what didn't really amount to an optimal training camp. So skill for skill, as as maybe unspecial as he was on the gridiron, like he always talks about how bad a football player he was compared to his, his two brothers. Oh, yeah. yeah, he's the best MMA athlete that I've ever seen. And certainly if people want to put an asterisk next to some of his accomplishments because of some of the transgressions, then that's what they're going to do. Um, but I do believe at his best this is the best fighter I've ever seen. And uh, I think it's a one-man conversation with respect to George St. Pierre and everybody else. And just because you touched on it, which you need to touch on that, genetics, um, they might be, he might be coming from the greatest athletic family uh, of all time. I mean, it'd be kind of hard to top. I know there's some great athletic families out there with great athletes, but it'd be a little hard to top two guys in the NFL top guys the one that's still playing might even make the hall of fame who knows and then you got you got john so um. yeah no genetics is a big part of it i don't have to tell you when some of these athletes walk into our fighter meeting the first thing i look at teddy size of their hands right size of their feet you know curtis blades one of our heavyweights wears like a size 16 shoe his hands are massive wasn't necessarily the case with Brock Lesnar. His hands maybe are are bigger top to bottom. But Leon Edwards, who fights this weekend in London, Teddy, he's yeah. massive for this welterweight division. And yeah. I think now that Leon has sort of raised his level because he's the champion, I think he's really going to perform. But uh, yeah, man, John Jones, he just has all of the physical skills that you would love. And I do expect a leaner more in shape, more muscular version when he fights Stipe ideally in July. I really do. I don't think this was the best John Jones at heavyweight that we're going to see. Can will will he beat Miocic? Um, I mean, I know that we're we're only predicting here, but uh, do you feel that Miocic can give him trouble? Yes, absolutely. I I believe right now the way the fight is priced, I believe Stipe Miocic to be a live underdog. If I can say that, I'm sorry, I'm not pronouncing his name right. No, you're good. You're good. That's one thing where. You know, I'm still working on that. Um, I thank God I have people that went to college. You um, can, <laughs> oh. you know, that give me that backup. But I'll stay with Sipe. Uh, um, so he can, uh, again, I interrupted you. Where can he give him trouble? 
Well, everywhere, really, Teddy. Right, right now, he's plus 270 as an underdog. I do think that price will come back. But Stipe Miocic is 40 years of age, right? And his entire series with Daniel Cormier played out over three years. He only competed once in all of those years and now has a layoff that's going to be even longer than that, right? So certainly the layoff is factored into the price. Certainly Stipe's age is factored into the price. We don't know if Stipe is going to come in the leaner version that he fought Daniel Cormier at, or is he going to be in the mid-250s to have more size against John Jones? Stipe isn't the MMA wrestler that John Jones is, but he's certainly a guy who has wrestling chops and a wrestling background. I think Stipe's footwork is going to prevent John Jones from doing a lot of things that he has historically done well. Um, but I said going into the Gon Jones fight that I felt like Cito Gon needs to fight the perfect fight. And I do think that if Stipe is going to beat John Jones, he's got to fight the more perfect fight, much more so than Johnny Bones does. So uh, I see it tighter than the betting line, but you know, John Jones certainly deserves the distinction as the favorite. Yeah, and Stipe deserves the the analysis you just gave with his, you know, with his uh, experience and with his resume. Quite frankly, that he, you know, he he's not in any fight that he doesn't belong in, right? Unless he's too shop one, unless you know the ship has sailed on him in a physical way, which. We don't know. I'm going to throw some at you. We have a big MMA audience too, John. I don't know. It's it's really grown, and um, it's not just boxing. Matter of fact, our boxing fans get mad at me. Teddy, you're talking too much. Uh, yeah. UFC. I'm like, come on, we can't win over here. Well, right, what's the right. matter with you guys? We're, you know, we're talking fights, baby. Right. But um, I, I'm going to throw some at you as as said from from where I come from. We'll look at the negative, um in breaking down Stipe that he's been inactive. I get it. But I look at it that it could be a positive because he's on the cusp of being a shop-worn guy. And I've seen those guys, when they get that rest, it's like a battery. It gets regenerated a little. I know it sounds a little kooky, but I've seen it. I've lived it. I've witnessed it where they regenerate a little bit. And maybe that's what the doctor, the best thing that the doctor could have ordered for Sipe, that he gets that rest. What do you think about that? Oh, I think to just dismiss that as a potential factor would be absolutely ignorant. I remember Andre Arlovsky in 2011 was left for dead. Here he is still competing in 2023, 12 years later, and can take a shot still at heavyweight deep into his 40s. So I do think it bears watching with Stipe. I think people lean way too much into his verbal ability or lack thereof, right? He's never been the most verbose guy in the world. So I think people are grasping when they suggest based upon his articulation that he is shop warm but i do believe that the chin is not what it was in his prime this is a guy that got knocked out by stefan strew back in 2012 i think there is absolutely something to potential regeneration and part of the reason why there are even more unknowns for john jones going into this fight is because we only saw two and a half three minutes of fight time so we don't even know if johnny bones can take a shot the way he used to be able to at this stage one other variable with John is, and he's talked about this openly before, is he struggles with a lot of free time with uh, drinking and drugging, and he's shown up like at the Dominic Reyes fight. I'd argue that that fight was close because John came in, you know, from a week of partying. And I think maybe there's a variable that maybe he ran through Cyril so easy, maybe he just thinks he can do that to everyone and doesn't show up with his A game for Stipe, and Stipe does bring his A game. 
So I think there's a lot of unknowns with John too. While he's the greatest, he also has a lot of uh, demons and wild cards at play. Yeah, no, I think you put that well. And Teddy, are we to take and can John Jones at his word when he says that he hasn't missed a training session during a given camp, right? He doesn't necessarily get the benefit of the doubt in the court of public opinion, but I do believe a challenge like Stipe, the mental commitment's always there, right? Studying the film, he's obsessant, right? He loves this stuff. I'm not suggesting that winning is like more important than his children, but it's pretty darn close. And there are a lot of athletes on this roster that are able to separate themselves from a singular result. John Jones can't do that. He's obsessed with winning. It always shows up in the film room. It always shows up in his fight IQ, even seven seconds in a groin strike, making sure that doesn't go unnoticed. But if he misses zero training sessions for Stipe and puts in eight to 12 weeks of his life, I don't think any heavyweight in the world beats him, but I'm not sure we've ever had that physical commitment from John Jones, even if he suggests that he was that committed for the Seattle gone fight. No, that's true, true, true. I agree. Not if we're using history as an indicator of the future. No, if we're going to go back in history as as far as guys that as far as guys that can still perform at a later age, you got to look at Texera. I mean, that guy is a beast. Really, I have so I have so much respect for all the guys in your business, John. But that guy's got to be at the top of the list to do what he's done at his age. I mean, and then, you know, he's a lot more than just the toughest landscaper of all time. Put it That's that way. That's the truth. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> no, you, I do believe of all the guys who have realized success at an advanced age, if we can even say that, right? Glover Teixeira, Randy Couture, Daniel Cormier, I mentioned Andre Arlovsky. I do believe Glover Teixeira set himself apart, right? I do. The the nature of the matchups he had against young, hungry, up-and-coming contenders and the fact that he was able to go toe-to-toe with them, I think you're absolutely right that he has set himself apart. One thing that I did just want to bring up with you briefly because, again, like I don't say this because I'm here, but having you – in this MMA space, to whatever degree, is a tremendous asset, right? I'm watching the telecast this past weekend, May Rob Dwalish-Willie and Piotr Jan, and they show your tweet. And you mentioned the word deliberate, right? How Piotr Jan, he just fights a little bit too deliberate for this type of matchup. And then a couple rounds later, you went back to that adjective, right? So I'm taking notes for my podcast that I'm taping later today. I write down Teddy Atlas deliberate, right? And then you go back to it, and that's the adjective. So your wealth of information and knowledge, right, it, it transcends combat sports and i was in your position granted there were only 10 people listening but i was hosting the mouthpiece boxing show in 2004 and people were like why are you guys talking about mma and you know i couldn't get those 10 people off my back i'd imagine for you it's a different navigation but it's it's a real thrill for us to have you talking about this stuff well thank you john it's like i said it's it's um it's great to have you with us. Uh, you give us validation with the MMA world. Yeah, you're probably smiling when I say that because you're so humble. But um, you do. You you <laughs> you do. You give you give us our chops, as the word you used earlier. Um, yeah. A little bit extra that that you're on here talking MMA with us. Uh, you know, you touched on. We touched on a fight with Jones, of course. On that card was an extraordinary upset. That's, I mean, that that upset um, in a women's fight was as big as they come. Probably have where does that fit in 
upsets that you've seen and, you know, what were you thinking when you were sitting there calling that? Because I, I love when you guys do this. Oh, well, hey. I mean, that, that's, and, and you had to, I didn't see it because I was there live with you, so I, I couldn't have the privilege of seeing that. But there must have been some, uh, oh, there must have know, been a few of those. There's nothing like it. It's the greatest unpredictable theater in live sport. And when I think back to maybe going to call a college basketball game, right? It, I just don't know how I would go back to doing that. This sport has ruined a lot of the other sports for me. But yeah, I mean, sometimes it's hard to quantify historically an upset until you have some separation from it. Certainly, I was more surprised when Juliana Pena beat Amanda Nunes, just given where yeah. Amanda Nunes was at that stage of her career. I don't want to sit here and say that this was a passing of the torch because Valentina Shevchenko is probably going to be a three to one favorite if there's an immediate rematch. And it stands to reason she's got a great chance to beat Alexa Grasso. But Alexa Grasso was elevating towards her fighting prime and everything was coming together. And she had put in the requisite work with her wrestling and her grappling juxtaposed against Valentina Shevchenko, who might have been smarting after a split decision win last June in Singapore. But I do believe that some of that shine had come off of Valentina, that the rest of the division felt like all of a sudden this champion wasn't so otherworldly and was a little bit beatable. But I do believe the Grasso upset was rooted in two things conditioning and preparation, right? Those are two things that she can control. She has the best coach, I think, that she can get in Mexico, her uncle Francisco Grasso, great jujitsu coaches that drilled that fight ending sequence. But then just her commitment to conditioning, not to mention that she trains, granted, it's not Mexico City, but training above sea level, right? The ability to go five rounds. She could have gone 15 rounds with Valentina Shevchenko. And I think she was buoyed by just the, the strength and conditioning. So, the whole division's wide open, man. I mean, I always say, and I know I'm being a little bit long-winded, but the best part of this job for me, the best part of this job for me is seeing a non-champion become a UFC champion for the first time. And thus the reactions. We're all very happy for Alexa Grasso here a week remove, removed. From I'll tell you episode. why it happens. I'll tell you why it happens, though. That I can speak on uh, from my boxing background. It happens because of Dana White and because, uh, really, I'm not... It happens because... He insists, unlike boxing, because boxing has no regulator. Boxing has no dictator, right? But, you know, sometimes a dictator can be good, as long as they're not lopping heads off. You know, that's not good. That's not good. Right. But, but when you say it's my way or the highway, you know, and you say and you insist that it's my brand, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to care more about the brand than I care about individuals. And week in and week out, Week in and week out, the audience, the MMA audience, the UFC and specifically audience, knows that they're going to get competitive fights. They know that the person with three losses, two losses, one loss, ten losses can beat the champion because they've been forged in the fire, because they've been in with that kind of competition and they have become what they're supposed to become, the best fighter they can be, a reliable fighter with whoever they get in the ring. That was Grasso. And in boxing, you don't get that because you got these different power promoters who 
control their little piece of real estate. They don't care about all the property of boxing. They don't care about all the fans of boxing. I know I'm going on a rant, but that's okay. They don't care about that. They care about their little piece of turf and their network that they have a deal with. And they're going to take their guy that they signed up and they're going to feed the raw meat and the fans are going to suffer because they're going to build their record up until finally they put him in with somebody and then they're going to look to cash out. And that's the big And if the guy's good enough, he wins. If he's not, then you say, oh, he wasn't ready for that guy. Well, why the hell wasn't he ready? Because because you're giving him a bunch of lollipops and you're... You're destroying the brand, your brand of boxing at that network because the fans aren't stupid. After a while, they're saying, hey, I I don't want to watch these one-sided, you know, blowouts. I'm going over to UFC and the audience has gone over, even at my dismay. Because I am a boxing guy. They have gone over your way. John, you guys have gotten the benefit of these greedy promoters just building the records of these guys, not building the fighters up and not building the product to where the fans can rely on that product in a way that I just described. That's my I love that rant. No, I want that rant when I get on the treadmill if I ever get back on the treadmill, but you're absolutely right. And when I joined the UFC, I came from ESPN in 2011. Teddy and Ken, we didn't have a pronunciation guide. So there have been so many lengths the UFC has gone to, right, to create this monster that we have right now, even just in terms of the live production, right? Hiring producers from ESPN like Zach Candido, other people to build out this infrastructure so that we are ready to put our proverbial best foot forward. And when there are combat sports fans that maybe are ripe for the taking, we feel like humbly we have the best live event television product that there is out there. But you're absolutely right. And for Dana White, too, their commitment to Mexico, it began like 2013, 2014. Lorenzo Fertitta, our matchmaker, Sean Shelby. A lot of us have covered Alexa Grasso's entire career, and certainly three years ago, she would have gotten steamrolled by Valentina Shevchenko. So it's really nice to see like that type of commitment pay off for them in the form of three Mexican champions being crowned in the first three months of the year. It's a very special time to uh, to be a part of the UFC. And even if you're not someone who can devote seven hours, 41 Saturday nights a year, you're getting a main event from the UFC every 40 of 50 Saturdays that is absolutely worth your time. Every week, week in and week out, it, it, it's just the truth. The truth is the truth. It doesn't really need anybody to spice it up. It stands on its own. Week in and week, in, week, in and week out, I hate to say it sometimes, but it's true. You're going to get a more reliable product from UFC than you're going to get from boxing. Because boxing, you might get one of those blowouts. Every once in a while, and then the trumpets go out, and good, everyone comes. You get the fight, you know it's going to be a good fight. But on a whole, on a weekly, consistent basis, boxing doesn't do the job of matchmaking that you guys do. And it's for the reason I just went, went through. And you used the word a minute ago, simple word, ready. That's why Grasso won. You could talk about the mistake that was made. You could talk about all of that. You know, she did the spinning kick and she she missed and she got... I get it. But the reason why Grasso won from Teddy Atlas's viewpoint is because she was ready. She was formed. She was forged. 
Yeah. She she was she was in the fire. She was made into a reliable fighter. And the only way you get made into a reliable fighter is by being in competitive fights. It's that simple. Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, I feel like she was developed so optimally. And even though she publicly suggested that maybe she wanted one more tune-up or one more fight before the championship opportunity, once she was afforded that date and that opponent, obviously she left no stone unturned. And and here we are. But I have to say, man, like in terms of the boxing stuff, in like 03, 04, 05, 06, when I'm out there covering all these HBO pay-per-views, even a fight like Bernard Hopkins against Winky Wright that wasn't the biggest fight in the world, it still felt like the biggest story in professional sports that weekend. And 15 years ago, it felt like five or six times a year, boxing was that. And now it just doesn't seem like it is that way five or six times a year. And that's disappointing to me. You know, I don't know if it's a lack of stars, if it has to do with the overall product, too many masters, too many, you know, there's a lot of different. No, you don't have one person leading the way. You don't have any product control. Yeah. You you don't have a police. You don't don't have any oversight. There's nobody saying, no, we got to put on decent fights. You got these promoters, their agenda is different than white's agenda because white wants the product to be the strongest it can be for the yeah. product and and these but whether it's whoever it is all these there's like four of them four power promoters out there and whoever it is take your turn it's about building up their network base it's about building up their stable of fighters that's what it's about and then every once in a while yeah comes down the pipeline that there's a big match to be made. Yeah, boom. Okay, let's go. Go to the windows, bring bring your chips. We're going to cash in. We're going to have a, but they exist weekly, monthly, whatever you want to call it, yearly, day to day by just putting on kind of by signing their guys and then building their records for television. That's what not for the not for fighters that become steeled in a way that a grosso becomes steeled. No, just in building records so that they can peddle their merchandise. I, I you know, I feel I feel terrible that I have to say that about my own sport that I've been in fifty yeah. years. Yeah. Fifty years. But that's what it's degenerated to. Um and and if we had a national commission I mean, I fought this fight for a long time on ESPN. We had a national commission. Some of those things might be able to be changed, but yeah, it's it's just not in the cards. Um, yeah. the way that you know the powers that be. Yeah, and it's not as though the UFC is without certain issues, right? Will the number fifteen ranked lightweight in the world? be making three or four times what they're making now uh, in 15 100%. or 20 years. I don't know, right? And that, you can certainly- There's an honest the man right there on our air, 100%. Well, right. And I, mean, I know, and I hear them already. I hear the fans already that are going to hear this tomorrow. Daddy, these guys don't get paid right. These guys, they got, yeah. I, oh, yeah. I, hear, I, I hear already those people are going to be coming after me. The ninjas are going to be coming over the wall. <laughs> yeah, look, right. look, yeah. oh, look, yeah. at a, look at it attack me and Ken right away. But you know what? I have no problem with that. First of all, you're always going to have 
that inequity. You're going to always have the stars that make more money. Yeah, it's a work in progress. Yes, you're always going to be at this point somewhere. Same thing in boxing where, you know, they talk about the oh, the fighters are making more money. The boxers are making more money. Well, go look on. Go look at the guys that aren't stars. Go look on the undercard and see because it's it's public domain, guys. You can see it, guys. When you see that uh, that so and so Canelo makes forty million dollars, but then go look on the undercard of the guy that's fifteen and zero, or five and zero, or ten and zero, that he's making five thousand dollars, you know, and he's making twenty thousand dollars. Go, that's there, guys. It's there everywhere, guys. You know, it's not right, right. it's not just one place that you could cherry pick to pick if you you know if you happen to wanna, you know, throw something back Dana White's way. It's everywhere. But I will say this stars are born and stars are developed. And I've seen I have seen in your sport and you have seen a progression. I've seen where there's a change where, you know, you could maybe you could say Conor McGregor was at the head of that change, you right. know, as a pioneer for that, bringing bigger purses. Hey, you bring more attention, you, you become a bigger star. Everybody, it trickles down. Everybody starts, instead of one star, now there's four, now there's 10, now there's 20. You got more stars now making money in your business than, than you did a couple years ago, a lot more. And you're going to have more six months from now, a year from now. Right. No, it's, and that's the biggest charge for us as commentators is to help the promotion humanize these athletes and build stars. And it's amazing to me. When people say, oh, man, who's the next superstar? To your point, in six months, we're going to be talking about a name that is completely off of our radar right now. Yeah, fighter pay is always a tricky issue. It's a polarizing issue. And again, I'm a full-time employee for the UFC and have been for 12 years, so it's a little bit of a tricky subject for me. But sometimes I will talk about like the 80th Bantamweight on the roster, right? So let's say we have 80, 135-pound men, right? So how much money is the 80th Bantamweight in the world making for the UFC? Not making them any money. And I think a lot of the fan base would like that fighter to make 30 to show and 30 to win. And it's just not realistic. But I do believe that change has been affected. And I do think in 15, 20 years, you know, no fighters commentating. Now, you know, fighters aren't going to get a part of the television deal necessarily. But I do believe we are trending in the right direction. And there's never been more millionaires under the UFC banner than there are right now. So. Talk about future superstars real quick. I can't help it. Uh, tell me what you thought about this nickel. I know it lasts for two seconds. I get it. The national anthem was longer. But uh, tell me about nickel because he is one of those future possible stars that they're building. It's amazing to hear the elite athletes, his fellow UFC fighters, talk about just how good he could be right now. And I don't have to tell someone like you that – one of the greatest UFC middleweights of all time, the former champion Israel Adesanya against Bo Nickel. That's a good matchup for Bo Nickel in theory, right? Somebody who's their first trade isn't necessarily wrestling. I can understand why people like some of those matchups for Bo Nickel right now against the elite guys, but I just think it's got to be a promotional progression that is a little bit deliberate to use your word. There's no rush. Give him the number 30th ranked middleweight in the world right now, but 
based upon everything that I've seen, the big game player that resides within, right? He was in a lot of big time wrestling showcase spots where he didn't just deliver, where he pinned the fuck out of people, you know? So (laughs) I'm all in chips to the center of the table on Bo Nickel. If you're asking me right now, do I think he'll be a world champion one day? I absolutely do. But I think we just got to slow our roll a little bit in terms of the matchmaking. You made a good point just a second ago. You separated athlete from really the professional side of it, the star side of it, where you said you have to give the promotional side a chance to progress. The athlete side needs to progress, the development and maturity of the fighter in in that, you know, obviously on that stage, he needs experience with gradually better guys. That That's the first part. But the pro- it's so true. The promotional side has to progress. This guy needs more time, you know, to be cooked, if you will. You know, to 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 cook this uh, this special, you know, <laughs> the, yeah. this special thing that we have here for people to become more aware, for people to to start to get curious about him, for people to start to want more of him. So there's two sides to that progression of a fighter. Right. You're absolutely right. And his coaches, Teddy, I don't have to tell you this, but they would kind of like to see him get punched in the mouth and deal with that adversity and see how he responds, right? This guy hasn't really been hit a whole lot. Certainly, they're not going to reveal a lot in terms of the sparring, but I do believe I flew back to Miami with his head coach, Mike Brown, and he sort of intimated, you know, we're looking forward to seeing him take a few shots and see how he responds before, you know, you line him up with Alex Pereira, our middleweight champion. 100%. A little different than my mentor, Customato. One time they asked Customato, for me, he's the greatest, but they asked him, um, don't you, what do you think about your guy, you know, whoever the fighter was? What do you think about your guy? You know, the, the chin, the chin hasn't really been tested. Are you waiting for that, you know, for that moment to see the chin tested? And he didn't hesitate. He said, no, I hope it never gets tested. <laughs> yeah, I like that, right. Yeah, no. <laughs> I know, get that. I, I mean, and I get it, too. Ken, jump in there. Oh, I, I, who do you like in the Usman-Edwards uh, rematch? So one thing that I think is interesting in terms of handicapping the fight is the altitude. So Gilbert Dorino Burns, who fought Kamar Usman for the title, has predicted that Leon Edwards will win this trilogy matchup. And his analysis is largely rooted in the altitude. Leon Edwards got off to a great start in Salt Lake City. I looked it up today, 4,300 feet above sea level. Kamar Usman trains in Denver, full mile, 5,280 above sea level. Leon Edwards, Birmingham, England, 459 feet above sea level. So I do think this is a potential factor. When I have the fighter meeting with Leon Edwards, the first thing I'm going to ask him, Ken, is why so listless in rounds two, three, and four? Was it a physical thing, right? Because certainly he was able to dig deep and land that head kick. But for Leon Edwards, there were huge pockets of this fight where he didn't do anything. So in terms of room for improvement, I think there's a lot more for Leon Edwards. So I think he's more competitive than, uh, you know, the plus 220 or so that's sitting next to his name. And, uh, you know, we'll we'll see. But until I hear Leon talk to me about the altitude, it's kind of hard to just completely dismiss that as a fact. I'm going to piggyback. I'm going to piggyback off of what you just said about room for improvement. Again, I'm going to go back to boxing. Uh, The old timers, John, would always say to me, when you win a title, you automatically become 30% better. Now, really, and, and I've seen it. I've seen it. And 
I always talk about this, John. You've, you've heard me where 75% of my business, your business, is this, the mind. 75% of it's the mind. You know, what do you believe? What don't you believe? That, that, yeah, you need the body. We get it. We, you, need the, you need the proper training. You need the endurance. You, you need the quick twitch muscle. You need, you need the technique. All of that, 100%. But this, oh. you know, this is the drive of the car. You know, this, this, uh, you could have the Ferrari, but if, I'm, but, but if you got the wrong guy driving it, you're just going into a wall. So, you, so I, I'm looking at that from, from, yeah. from me. I'm looking at that. I immediately, the way he walks in, the way he walks into the cage, the way he leaves the locker room, when he gets in there, pre- I'm looking at that. A lot of people might say that's trivial stuff. No, not for me. I want to see is that 30% showing? Is that 30% improvement from winning the title? Is it there? I love to hear you say it, right? Because I have leaned into this angle. And you can be sure Alexa Grasso is going to be better the next time we see her. But Leon Edwards, physically, he already looks better. His muscle mass already looks different than it did last August. So, yeah, man. I mean, I don't know if he's going to be 30% better, but he's absolutely going to be better. And is Kamar Usman going to be better? It stands to reason he could be, but this is the guy that was 15-0 and 0 going into that last fight in the UFC, right? So I don't know, man. I just think there's a lot of pressure on Kamar walking into that O2 arena in London. I'm clenching my fists because I am already feeling the tension of this well, fight. Speaking about the mental side, you're right, because you just said it, 15-0 and 0 when he was walking in. He had that aura of invincibility. That's gone. That's gone. Yeah. I I mean, I got news for you. When that's gone, I'm not saying you don't come back, but there's a difference. There's a void. There's a gap. There's a wound. Yeah. When that's when that's gone, I mean, you know, when it was when it was gone with Tyson, it was different. He was different. Even from the people that were facing him, the, that intimidation, that X factor that Kenneth talk about, that in, that variable, that, that, that was gone. That was one less thing in the arena, one thing less thing to deal with for the opponent. And so that's gone. So now we got to see, you know, how does he do with that gone? Yeah. What no, does he replace that it certainly factors in, and sometimes I'll say to a fighter in our fighter meeting, I keep harkening back to them, but I'll say, do you have any negative emotions when it comes to training, or do you think about retirement? And Kamar Usman has started to think about retirement, and perhaps that's because it's been 10 successive championship training camps. Perhaps it's because there have been some hand surgeries. Who knows? Perhaps it's because his bankroll is fatter than yours and mine at this point He wasn't point thinking that before he lost, I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess. So, I'm going to guess. Right. But, you know, I do think that once guys start to think about the end, you know, it can be hard to uh, to be as primal as you once were. Yeah, 100%. Once you got one foot out the door, you know, that, that, that door has now become relevant that never was relevant before, that that yeah. door, that possibility is open, that you have another option. See, what makes these guys great is they got no option. They got no option. They get in there. They have to win. This is their life. They got no option. Once you have a foot out the door, guess what? You have an option. Right. It right. changes things immediately. 
No, it's true. I've heard some guys who get a chance, Ken, as a television analyst, and they'll say to me, oh, man, if I could do this, I would stop fighting. And it's like, oh, they're kind of inexorably linked. You know, you go win a few more fights. Maybe you can do this forever, you know, but uh, yeah. <laughs> That's exactly right. And, John, I want to be sensitive to your time. I know we've gone over 10 minutes and the producer is flagging me. John has You're a good. I got stop, a few more so. minutes for sure. I'm sorry, okay. John. Gaethje, Gaethje Fazeev, who wins? All right, so I can't predict, obviously, as I'm calling the fight. Rafael Fazeev, to the He's surprise of some. He's a future star, right? He might be a future star. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people, and I do use the betting line as a lens through which to look at this competition because I think most of your audience would be surprised to learn that Rafael Fazeev is a near three-to-one favorite against the former UFC interim champion Justin Gaethje, who has been in all of these big fights forever, right? Fazeev's the guy who's won six in a row. Fazeev is the guy who deserves this distinction as the favorite. He kicks like a mule, outstanding cardio, just a crowd-pleasing style. Matrix, what about that Matrix move that he does this thing? I mean, that's crazy. Right. I mean, he is as watchable as any fighter on the roster, and he's fighting the guy who has long held that title as your favorite fighter's favorite fighter, Justin Gaethje. Where is Justin Gaethje, though, at this stage of his career? You know, I do think that selectively this wouldn't have been the first matchup that Justin Gaethje would have picked. Uh, But far be it for me to put it past the future UFC Hall of Famer and bona fide legend Justin Gaethje to spring the upset. I'm just saying, Rafael Fazeev is the goods. And even if his next fight, if he beats Gaethje, might not be for the title. He's on a championship trajectory. And I think he's competitive right now against every single top five 55 in the world. I agree. I agree. Well, uh, John, thanks for doing this. We really appreciate your time. I'm sorry if I held you a little extra, John, but you know, (laughs) When when I get a hold, when I get oh, my hands well, no, on somebody, time. when I get my hands on somebody <laughs> that actually knows something about you know this sport and about fighting and has that kind of expertise and that passion and just background with it, I I get crazy. I'm sorry. I think we need our own show. We'll call it, you know, the A-Team, Atlas and Anik, whatever we call it. Make sure we put Teddy Atlas's name first. But no, next time we need a 90-minute window. You know, these pay-per-view weeks are pretty challenging. We're packing the suitcase, wheels up to London tonight. But when Teddy Atlas calls, you absolutely take that call. And uh, hopefully we can do something cross-promotionally, have you on our show at some point in time. But... Dude, it's just been tremendous to get to know you a little bit and to work with you professionally. You know, we had Teddy on the Mouthpiece Boxing Show in like 04. He doesn't remember this, right? But just as fucking gracious back then as you are now to two guys who nobody was listening to. And that will never be lost on me. So thank you. People will always listen to you because you're the real deal. And um, because you do your work, you do your homework, you pay your dues. And you know what? You're it comes across that you're a genuine person and you make whatever you do, you make it better. There's certain people that they do. It's, 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 it's not just being nice. They make it better. You make, UFC is a great product. I already said that for the last half hour. You make it better. Your presence, what you bring makes it better. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Teddy. That means the world to me. Thank you, Ken. And uh, I hope to see you in the not too distant future, perhaps in Vegas in a couple months, but Best of luck, boys, and we'll uh, we'll do it again soon. Hopefully, with a ninety-minute window. I might w- real quick. I might be I might be in Newark. Are you going to be in Newark? I'll be in Newark. You got to make be- that happen. I've been told by Charlie Monahan, the great Charlie Monahan, that it looks like I I and I don't have to put wheels up. I can walk over there. That's right. Um, so I might see you there. All right, I'll see you in Newark in May. All right, John. Thanks again. Good luck in England. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Take care, John. <laughs> 